Let me make a quick announcement first, and then we are going to pray, and we are going to climb neck deep in this. Uh, first of all, if you have kindergartners or below and would like to dismiss them for Kids Point, we have a time of worship set up for them. You don't have to dismiss them, but if you would like to, then uh, you can do that. And uh, you can meet Kelly right over there in the blue shirt, and she can lead them over there to have a time prepared of uh, kind of kids-oriented worship. Lord, first of all, this morning, I want to pray for Jake Huck as he's preaching uh, at a nearby church in Carrollton. Uh, Lord, we want to pray that his time there at Global Harvest Church is a time that's rich as he fills that pulpit. Lord, I pray that you speak uh, words of truth and that you expose realities about you and about man that leave that people changed. I pray that you'll speak clearly through Jake and use him for your own glory. We pray for the pastor of this church, John Choi, and the Korean believers in that church. We pray that they are wrecked by the gospel. We pray that their instrument of evangelism is a unified, Christ-enjoying, inner-involved people. We pray that you are glorified through true community that's enjoying you out loud and reaching outward to those who don't know you. Lord, I pray for this pastor and his wife, that he is blessed in his marriage and that he is blessing his wife and his first ministry or his primary ministry is to her. And that what uh, you give him else gushes over onto this people. Lord, this morning, as we finish up a month of prayer for Kazakhstan, we want to pray for a view of the Trinity. In a Muslim context where they only know a monad, Pray that they can see the beauty of the triune God. They can see the bankruptcy of the monad. They can see the true community that you've had before you even created the earth. The love that you extended to each other, the faithfulness, the righteousness that you already own. Or to pray for an understanding, first of all, among believers in Kazakhstan, those that we can connect with, and then I pray for this to spread like wildfire in a monad context. Lord, I pray for Bayat, who's walked away from the faith because he can't understand the Trinity. Lord, I pray that someone can be equipped to stand ready to give an account for the hope within and to show Bayat the mystery and beauty of a triune God. Lord, we are thankful for the time that we're about to spend together. I thank you in advance. I pray for understanding above a difficult truth. And I pray that it will invade our Tuesday and our dining room and our den and our conversation and our cubicles, our warehouses, our truck cabs. It will invade our thoughts on Thursday. It will invade our dinner table on Saturday. Pray that you'll find true worshipers as a result of what we've heard today. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> we prayed for Jake and Stephanie Huck, and, or at least for uh, Jake asked me to pray for some things this morning regarding Kazakhstan. He and, he and I had a good conversation yesterday, kind of getting caught up on what's going on with him, what he's burdened about regarding Kazakhstan, and a lot of it has to do with the Trinity. The stuff that seems so irrelevant and 
I, you know, I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. When I was presented husband and wife, yeah, it was in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. But beyond that, it's just kind of a heady notion. Academic has nothing to do with Tuesday or dining room or den. In reality, it has everything to do with Tuesday and dining room and den. Between this Sunday and next, we're going to engage Trinity. We're going to hear more of it as we're finishing up John chapter 14 over the next few weeks and months. But I want you to know something right up front. It's funny the number of conversations I've had with people about the book The Shack. The book The Shack is fiction. Don't go to a fictional book and try and get your understanding of the Trinity. I haven't read The Shack yet, but I know it's a fictional book. And I know it gives sort of representatives of the triune God. Let the Word give you an understanding of the triune God. I promise you this will be a more accurate resource. So that's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to go to this Bible. Between this Sunday and next, it's going to be sort of part A and part B. And, 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 and they're connected. You can't really get part B unless you've gotten part A. So for those of you who are here, you've got a treat in store. For those of you who might be listening online this week or listening on a CD. Man, I'm glad you're going to eat it because you're going to need it for next week. And it's just going to blow the doors open next week. But we're going to engage part A this week. And let me tell you right up front that this impacts our faith. It's not just some academic notion. There are people walking away from the faith or rejecting the faith because they don't get this. Some of y'all may remember the baptism that we had a few weeks ago that Jake Huck presented online. That was Biot. Biot has walked away from the faith because he can't get the Trinity. You think it's a surprise that it happens in Kazakhstan? It happens in Greenville. It happened in the New Testament church. People walked away from the faith for one reason or another. And a misunderstanding of the Trinity makes a great excuse. So the people of God should have a handle on this. Or should at least be able to go to Scripture and say, well, here's pictures of Him, Father, Son, and Spirit. In John chapter 14, man, that is the magnum opus. That's the word I'm thinking of for Trinity. Beautiful. Because they're all three here. I've been studying guys like Peter Lightheart, in case you want to write down some names. A guy named Ralph Smith also wrote a book on Trinity and Reality. More than anything, I've been studying my text, lots of it. John chapter 14 is where we're going to be this morning, so go ahead and turn there. Probably already there. I'm going to start in verse 1, but when we get to verse 7 through 11 is where we're really going to engage. It's where we're really going to tune in and unpack this morning. As in the hours before Jesus goes to the cross, he's speaking to those who've walked with him for three years. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, uh, Lord, um, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth, Tom. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Pay attention. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip, uh, Lord, uh, show us the father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, Phil, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else... Believe on account of the works themselves. The things that I'm going to bring out this morning is really four really important phrases in this passage that we're going to draw out or at least focus on this morning and next. And they're these phrases beginning in verse 10. Jesus says, I am in the Father. The next phrase, and the Father is in me. In the rest of that verse toward the end, the Father dwells in me. And then in verse 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I mean, I got to tell you, for years I've been reading ahead in John, knowing that if the Lord doesn't come back or he doesn't take me home first, that we're going to move on in that direction. And I'm reading over that years ago going, humph, humph. If it was written, it would be H-M-P-H-H, humph. And the Father is in me and I am in the Father. okay. Next thing I can get, try and maybe get my head around, move on, the read real fast technique. Well, thankfully, when we're preaching verse by verse, we can't do that. We can't cheat. So I've been gnawing on this thing and really found a treasure. And let me prepare you for something that's new. I have to tell you, I like new things, but we can make God of new things. And we can just be about the next new thing. We don't want to do that, but we do want to enjoy a new thing when it shows up. And this is a new, remarkable thing for the people of God. Or at least for this people. <laughs> it's been around a long time. It's always been there, in fact. But the Father is in me. And Jesus says, and I am in the Father. And the Father dwells in me. And I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Let me tell you, this is not a geographic containment. It just doesn't work. Those of you who can envision this. You grab a piece, piece of Tupperware. You put something in a piece of Tupperware and you say, okay, I'm going to contain that object in that piece of Tupperware. Whatever's in that Tupperware cannot contain the Tupperware. It just doesn't work. It's not going to work geographically. Or you can think about a house. There's a room in a house. The house contains that room, but that room can't contain the house. It might contain a little dollhouse version of it, but it can't contain the house itself. It just doesn't work. A city might have a neighborhood within it, but the neighborhood cannot contain the city. What you have to appreciate and understand is that this is not a spatial relationship. What this is, this is a relational indwelling. It is a relational indwelling. It's an inter-involvement and interconnectedness and interdependence. I'm going to give you an illustration that's... It's, fallen and it's weak and every illustration has some place where it's going to fall apart. And when we're illustrating the Trinity or illustrating these sort of truths, things will fall apart. But I'm going to give you an illustration that you can get. I'm looking in the stands right now and the bleachers 
And I see some of the dads up here, and I'm looking at some of the dads, and I know what your little boys look like. And I'm thinking about your little boys, and I'm thinking little mini-me's. Some of you are like little versions, or you have little versions of you walking around. People say that about me and Luke and Daniel. Little miniature versions of daddy walking around. There's a, a, a genetic connection there where there's a DNA connection where you look at the, the kid and he may even have some of, the, some of the same facial features as his daddy. But even more than that and better than that, you see social and learned connections. You see a little boy that sort of handles life like his daddy handles life. He smiles the same way his daddy smiles. He laughs at the same sort of things that his daddy laughs at. This might be frightening. He handles problems the same way. His daddy does. There's an inter-involvement, an inter-indwelling, an interconnectedness, and an interdependence. The father is in the son, and the son is in the father. And here's the key. This is going to connect to next week. Just remember this, or maybe if you take notes, put a little, little star beside this, because this is going to come unglued next week. And the more involved they are in each other's lives, the more you see them in each other. Huh. That's why some of y'all that have adopted kids, your kids look like you too anyway. It's crazy. The more involved you are in that kid's life, the more you see them in each other. This is a fallen, albeit insufficient illustration that helps us understand the father and son. That's why the father is revealed in the son. And you look at the son and say, well, yeah, there's dad. I'm getting it. Some of y'all know right off the top of your head, Isaiah chapter 6. Don't turn there. I'm going to read a passage to you. Listen to this passage. It's a familiar passage to many of you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one he called to, to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts who the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost, for, a man of unclean, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's a familiar passage to a lot of us. And most of us think about the Father the interesting thing is, over in John chapter 12, verse 41, we find out that this is actually Isaiah's writing about the Son. But guess what? He looks like the Father. You see the Father all over him. You see the Father in him. The early church fathers had a term for this. It's a Greek word. I'm going to introduce you to a new word this morning. And don't be afraid of new words. Because new words have new concepts and new meanings that you fall in love with. This new word that I'm going to introduce to you this morning is the word perichoresis. It's a Greek word, and I'm going to explain, I'm going to break it down for you here in a minute. But I want to first introduce you to the concept. It's derived from another Greek word that means to contain or to penetrate. It was used by our early church fathers when they were preaching and teaching on the very same passage I'm preaching and teaching on today. Is that cool to think that 1,400 years ago, 
that somebody was preaching from John 14, verses 7 through 11, and they're engaging the same realities that we are now? 300 years A.D., that they're engaging realities like this? Man, this is some sweetness right here. A guy named Hilary Zaportier in the 4th century, and a guy named John of Damascus in the 7th century, when they're describing the Trinity, they described it this way in terms of perichoresis. Mutually, now listen to this word, interpenetrating. Mutually indwelling. Cleaving together. Listen to these words from John of Damascus. He said, the three persons dwell and are established firmly in one another, for they are inseparable and cannot part from one another. This is written in 600-something A.D. On this passage, he says, but they keep to their separate courses with one another, without coalescing or mingling, but cleaving to each other. For the Son is in the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit is in the Father and the Son, and the Father is in the Son and the Spirit. But yet there is no coalescence or commingling or confusion. And there is one and the same motion of the three subsistences, which is not to be observed in any other creature. I know that's some hard, deep thoughts, and that's why I told you you need to be ready this morning because the train is rumbling. If you can get your head around this reality, what he's saying is these three distinct persons are moving in a union. Perichoresis, when it's broken down in the Greek, peri means to go around like a perimeter. Choresis is where we get the word choreography, dance. That's what this has been described as, the dance of God. It's like folk dancers are a dance group that's so inter-involved and so interconnected that they move as one body. Listen to a guy named Eugene Peterson. You might recognize his name. He wrote the message. Listen to these words. Just take in the beauty of this in regards to our God. Imagine a folk dance, a round dance with three partners in each set. The music starts up and the partners holding hands begin moving in a circle. On signal from the caller, they release hands, change partners and weave in and out, swinging first one and then another. The tempo increases, the partners move more swiftly with and between and among one another, swinging and twirling, embracing and releasing, holding on and letting go. But there's no confusion. Every movement is cleanly coordinated in precise rhythms as each person maintains his or her own identity. To the onlooker, the movements are so swift, it's impossible at times to distinguish one person from another. The steps are so intricate that it's difficult to anticipate the actual configurations as they appear. Sweet picture of the Godhead Father, Son, and Spirit, while remaining distinct persons. God moves as a union. There are no renegades. They move as a union. Like our boy John of Damascus said, there is one in the same motion of three subsistences, but no coalescence or commingling. Imagine those dancers on the dance floor moving so fast that if you take a snapshot with your phone or with your flip 
camera or whatever you got, you, all you get is a blur. And you want to say, I want to take a picture at John, but you can't get just John because it's a blur. I want to see just Jesus, but you can't see Jesus because it's a blur. You see the beauty of perichoresis. Perfectly timed movements of releasing, embracing, stepping, and turning. It's a beautiful picture of a perichoretic God. Three distinct persons moving in a union of Godness. You look at any one moment, and it's difficult to know who you're seeing. Think about the work of creation. Genesis chapter 1, God speaks into nothingness. And he says, let there be light. The Father speaks and says, let there be light. He says, let there be an expanse. Let the earth sprout vegetation. And look what he says right here that clues us in to the dance is he said, let us make man in our image. Who's us? It's the dance. Let us make man in our image. The Father speaks. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that while the Father speaks, that it's the Son that's the agent of creation. He does the creating. And Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that all the while the Spirit hovers above the waters. The dance is on. And it's beautiful, but it's blurry. Who's doing what? It's a sweet blur of godness. And it's made up of distinct persons who mirror each other. You look at one and you see the others. You look at another and you see the others. They mirror each other, creating an elegant, marvelous union. We see them involved and moving and working in perfect synchronicity reflecting one another. There's some proofs of this reality in this passage. In John chapter 14, let me show them to you real quick. John chapter 14, verse 7, he says to Thomas, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, look, he says, you do know him, this distinct person from me, and you've seen him, this distinct person from me. You've seen him because guess what? I'm a mirror reflecting the Father. It's a proof. He says to ordinary Phil in verse 9, he says, Phil, have I been with you so long you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's a proof of the Father indwelling the Son. There's a couple more proofs here. In the next verse, in verse 10, he says, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, and the words that I say, they're the Father's words. The works that I do, they're the Father's works. It's the proof for what he's saying of Father, indwelling Son. Now let me tell you how important this is. Turn to John chapter 1 verse 18. For those of you who are kind of thinking, oh man, this is heady and ah, it's kind of irrelevant or impractical maybe, Mm, I'm not sure I can get my head around this. I'm not sure it's really that important. Look at John chapter 1 verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God. If it was not true 
that God was perichoretically related to himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. If it wasn't true that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, if it were not true, then that verse would end right there. It would end with no one has ever seen God. And you could take your big pen, marks a lot, and put a big period after that, and you could take the rest of the book of John and rip it out because it's not true. In fact, you could take the rest of your New Testament out. That's how important this is. It's the beating heart of the gospel, but we're oblivious to it because it's hard. The people of God have got to engage this and go, yes, the Father is in the Son. And verse 18 continues. Thankfully, it doesn't end right there. It says, the only God who is at the Father's side, this is Jesus. He has explained him. He's revealed him. How can he do that? Because the Father is in him. How can he do that? They can do it because they're about the perichoretic dance. This is the crux of the gospel. This is the pivotal truth of the gospel, that the Father is in the Son. If he's not, we can all go home. If he's not, we can all go start finding some unblemished lambs and goats and doves and start sacrificing them. We can go pitch a tent and see if we can get some priests to man that tent. And we can sacrifice and try and get with God the best we're going to get. And then occasionally when God actually shows up in the tabernacle and the smoke, the Shekinah glory fills the tabernacle, we got to bail out of there like Jack Bauer. Because we can't know him. Because for John, seeing is knowing. And knowing is believing. If you can't see him, you can't know him. You can't know him, you can't believe, and you can't have eternal life. This is the meat of the gospel. What I want to do in these next few minutes is I want us to worship in the Word. Turn to Luke chapter 8. We're going to worship in response. Sometimes we worship with song, usually You need to understand that when I'm preaching that hopefully we are worshiping. I had somebody come up to me after a sermon one time and say, hey man, I don't know what worship is, but when you're preaching, I think I'm doing it. And I said, exactly. You're exactly right. But I want you to connect to what we're about to do in these next few minutes as worship. We're seeing Father in Son, Son in Father. We're seeing that that is the pivotal truth of the gospel. So we're going to worship in response to that in the Word. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at his feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. How many of y'all had daughters? I have one. She's 11. Only daughter. Climb into this story. And let's see what we can find out about God the Father from God the Son. 
This little girl is dying, and Jesus went. Whatever he was about to do, we don't know what he was about to do, but he dropped whatever he's about to do, and he goes where Jairus asked him to go. And as he went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 12 years. She spent all her money on physicians. I was talking with somebody yesterday that's had a back problem for years. Christy's back has hurt for years. How many of y'all have other problems that have hurt for years? We have daughters. We have problems, physical problems that have lasted for years. And she could not be healed by anyone else. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he's still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Oh, well, too late, Jesus. Jairus' daughter is dead. Don't be troubled with coming on over. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered, Don't fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, Arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. What we can learn about God the Father from watching God the Son is that Jesus had time for those that are in need. Jesus was in the middle of doing something, and Jairus comes to him, and he goes this way to help Jairus. He's on his way to help Jairus, and a woman with an issue of blood stops him. You're going to say, oh, I don't have time for you. There's a little girl that's dying. He calls her daughter, and he heals her. Man, let's enjoy this about God the Father. If God the Son explains and exposes the realities and character of God the Father, we've got to enjoy that the Father is not too busy for us who will have sick daughters who will have sick daddies, who will have persistent ailments, who will have money struggles, who will have marital struggles, who will have family struggles. God the Father is not so aloof and busy that he can't help us. Does that minister to you? Look at John or Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash first before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Your noses are clean. Your hair is parted. 
You look like the perfect believer, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to the Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. And neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. You're like dead people that people don't even know are there. If we're watching the sun, we can enjoy the reality that as Jesus speaks scathing words to the Pharisees, we can know that the Father hates religious people whose hearts are really, in actuality, far from him. We can know the Father hates it. Turn to John chapter 4. And I'm going to start moving quickly through John. Just snippets that we can worship with. John chapter 4. When Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman to a Jew was dirty. She was unclean. She was a non-Jew. And Jesus, moving through Samaria, stops at a well to speak to this woman who's had multiple husbands and a current live-in. And as we watch Jesus speak to this Samaritan woman, we can know that the Father loves outcasts. We can know that the Father loves what the world calls trash. Does that minister to you? John chapter 5, when Jesus approaches the pools of Bethesda, there are multiple pools there, there are porticos. There would have likely been hundreds of people surrounding these pools. As Jesus walks up to one pool, listen, and he walks up to one man, And he asks him if he wants to be healed. He walks by the hundreds of sick and lame to come to this one man. And in doing that, he's reflecting the father's character who chose Abraham among all sun and moon worshipers. He's reflecting the father's character who chose Jacob and not Esau before either of them had ever done anything good or bad. As he approaches that one man at that pool with hundreds of people surrounding that pool, he's reflecting his father who chose David among all shepherds, who chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Jesus reflects God the Father's eclectic character in gathering the church, the ecclesia, over the ages. Jesus is reflecting the character of God the Father as he called Peter. Come here, Peter. I'm calling you by name. Not the rest of the fishermen dudes. You, Peter, come here. You, Matthew, walk away from that booth. You, James. You, John. You, Philip. You, Thomas. As he calls Lazarus Lazarus by name, thankfully, or that graveyard would have emptied. He's reflecting the character of the Father as he calls by name. 
He's reflecting the character of the Father who chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, the Father predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Jesus is just reflecting the character of the Father. John chapter 6, when Jesus feeds the multitudes, we know that the Father cares about what you eat or drink. If He's going to clothe the lilies... And he's going to tend to the fallen sparrow. He'll care for you also. The God that hung the Pleiades. John chapter 7, 8, and 9. All three of those chapters, the tone and tenor of those chapters is controversy and division. Here's one passage that sums it up. Chapter 7, verse 43. It says, so there was a division among the people over him, over what he's done, over what he said, over when he's done things. There was division over him. And the next two chapters after chapter 7, it's more division, one right after another. And when Jesus preaches messages that divide and leaves some worshiping and some looking for a rock to stone him or looking for some shackles to put him in jail, we can realize that he's reflecting the character of God the Father. That the Father's message is divisive. The Father's message will be an aroma of life to life to some, but the aroma of death to others. He's just reflecting the character of the Father. John chapter 11, when Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, We can watch the Son and learn that the Father mourns with us when we lose someone that we love. Some of you are too young for that to happen. Some of you know how that feels. And it's good to know that the Father mourns with you. John chapter 12, when Jesus looks for a donkey's colt, the embodiment of unimpressive. The goober ride. The picture of the unlikely. When Jesus looks for that sort of ride into Jerusalem to show them what sort of king he is, we can get to know the character of the Father who spoke the Pleiades into existence that he's also that sort of king who's lowly, who works with the unlikely. John chapter 13, when Jesus washed feet, we can know that God the Father is the sort of king who steps down from his throne to tend to his servants. Some of you are impressed when the boss does that. We've never been around a king ruling, but you can imagine what that would be like. Take the boss stooping down to help the lowest employee I saw these two guys eating in a restaurant last night out in Miller Grove eating catfish. And I saw this guy at a table next to us that was wearing these fine clothes. It looked like he was the boss. There was just two of them sitting together. Across from him was sitting a dude that had calluses. All, he had the calluses on the back of his hands. The guy looked like 100 miles of bad road. He'd been working hard. And it's $14 a plate at this place. 
And it looked like the boss was tending to his employee. And I thought, man, that's cool. And I thought, man, that pales to a God, a God that stoops and washes feet. Can we marvel at that in worship? Can we enjoy that that's the character of the Father? Can we enjoy that when Jesus teaches all the time, he just didn't have a couple of sermons here and there, a couple of wise words here and there? Can we enjoy the reality that Jesus teaches all the time? He preaches, rebukes, he encourages. And we can know from watching Jesus that the Father is an engaging God. He's not some aloof God that created, wound up this thing called creation, put it into motion, and then sit back and watch the experiment. For me growing up, the picture of manliness was Josie Wales. Josie Wales was quiet. Guys that he rode with or ladies that he bumped into, they wanted to talk and chat, but he was a man of few words. He's a picture of strength. Thankfully, our God is not that kind of picture of strength. He's not quiet. He's not a God of few words, but he's consistent in teaching and preaching as he goes and as we go. Not just in moments of crisis. Not just in some sort of special, life-changing, pivotal moment in your life. But in the routine and mundane Sundays. As we go. On April the 26th. That our God has a message for his people. Because we see Jesus teaching on the road to Emmaus. We see Jesus teaching between Nazareth and Capernaum, between Capernaum and Bethany, between Bethany and Jerusalem, as they went. Pull up a hillside, fellas. Look at there, a fig tree. Look, the temple. Look, the widow. Daddies, you want to know what it looks like to teach your kids? Look there. You want to know what our God is like? Look there. He's got a message for us every day. Not just every now and again when we're in crisis or in profound moments. He's equipping us for future moments. Ultimately, he's equipping us so when we step into his presence, we'll know all about him. We won't be strangers. I already know about this about you, God. I'm going to enjoy it in your presence right now. Do you realize you're being equipped for that right now? That's the kind of God that we serve. We've got to know that as the Son was not self-seeking, where he says, not my will but yours. As the Son is not self-seeking, where he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As we watch the Son and we marvel We can watch the sun and know that we are seeing a mirror reflection of the Father. That He's self-giving. That's the character of our God. i got to confess something to y'all. I don't know how many years ago now. It's probably three years that I preached through John chapter 6. I began to step into... 
a view of God's sovereignty in the work of salvation. John 6, specifically. Prior to then, I kind of had a view of partnership. God does this one thing, and I kind of do this thing, and we work together. You don't need to turn there. Yeah, I guess everybody's curious now. You can look at it later. Things changed for me at John 6, and the rest of John 6. And John 8, and John 10, and John 12, and John 14. Where I'm seeing God at work, completely at work, in the dark heart of man. We think we choose God when in reality God has chosen us. Just like that man in Bethesda pool was chosen. I've embraced that, but I have to confess to you. I've also embraced these teachings that we've been saved by God from God. You have that view that God and Satan are competing and God rips us from the hands of Satan and we're saved. It doesn't work that way. What happens is the holy wrath of God is directed at sinful man, but the grace of God steps in front of us, and his name name is Jesus, and he takes what we're due. I'm very comfortable with we're saved by God, from God, but I have to confess to you that I've had this view of God the Father. I've been left in this view of sovereignty with sort of this view of God the Father as, man, you sure are lucky Jesus stepped in the way of you, because I want to mash you. I've got to confess this view of the Father, man, this white-hot wrath is just waiting to eat you alive, but nice Jesus steps in the way. And what these realities are telling me, they're showing me, embrace sovereignty. Embrace God's work in the dark heart of man, but also embrace that the Father is gracious. The Father is merciful. The Father is true. The Father is a servant. God the Father who spoke the Pleiades, 250 sons that are moving in the same direction, is compassionate and cares about your pain. That's got to mean something to you. We can know it. We can trust it. Because the Son shows it to us. It's perichoretic mirror God that moves as individuals in a beautiful divine blur is something that the people of God have to enjoy. Now what I want you to do this week, for the rest of this week between now and next Sunday, I want you to gnaw on this. I realize it's some difficult truths. I realize it. I realize these bleachers are uncomfortable. (laughs) I realize it's hot in here. I realize some of y'all had a late night. But I will be brokenhearted if you do not engage this between now and next Sunday. You'll be missing out on some riches that we will eat together next Sunday. That is going to blow. These realities are going to blow it wide open. I beg you to engage this this week. Let me pray. God, I recognize that these are some difficult truths hitting 
uh, regular hearts and minds just like mine that I've had the opportunity of weeks and months to gnaw on this and that your people are being confronted with this for the first time today. Lord, I pray that if anything that we can walk away right now this, this afternoon thankful that John chapter 1 verse 18 doesn't end with a period midway through and that the rest of that book aren't empty pages. That our New Testament is not ripped out, but that it is flush. And it's full of reality, ultimate reality, because you are poured out in the sun. Because we can look at the sun and behold you. I pray that that somehow gives us pause. I pray this week that shepherds, fathers, maybe for the first time, will sit at their dinner tables with their wives and their kids. And if they don't have kids, that they'll sit with their wives and say, Hon, what does this mean? What could this mean? Lord, I pray that we will muse, that we will gnaw, that we will chew on this reality that makes us Christian. And Lord, I cannot wait until next week until we see how it invades Tuesday. Lord, I pray that this week that you will prepare the hearts of your people to be blessed with those realities next week. Lord, we are so thankful. We confess together. We are so thankful that you are revealed in your Son, that you are knowable in your Son, that you are seeable in your Son, that you are believable in your Son, and that in believing in your Son that we may have life. Lord, I pray that today on the 26th of April that that matters to us. Lord, we want to respond right now in song. We pray that you'll find it a sweet aroma. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. I have to tell you all, I'm kind of grieved this morning. I'm grieved because I fear that we can be simple. You know, something that's new or hard, just like, oh man, just give me something easy. We could be so conditioned by TV shows and activities that are just so easy. Sleep is easy. Eating's easy. This isn't easy. I'm grieved because I'm going back over it in my head and my schedule this week, and I'm thinking, did I not spend enough time in prayer? Or did you get it and it just didn't look like it? Are these bleachers just that uncomfortable? And Satan's busy with me, I'm telling you too. He starts in on me and he says, man, nobody's going to pick this up this week. They got bills to pay, jobs to tend to, classes to take, yards to work on, clothes to buy, stuff to sell. We don't have time for this. I'm sitting over there thinking all that right now. I'm confessing to you and I'm begging you begging you to engage this this week. This may be, it probably is the most profound message that I've preached in the book of John. 
And I realize you can't tell a whole lot by what you see. Brad Cardwell's counseled me on that before. He probably counseled me after my words this morning. But man, if you didn't get this this morning, even if you think you did, it's taken me months to eat this. I'm begging you to gnaw on this this week. You know what? We have it online. You can podcast it. You can pick up a hard copy CD at the church building. How sweet would it be if you just even got on online and put in perichoresis? P-E-R-I-C-H-O-R-E-S-I-S. How crazy would that be if you just, man, I'm just going to go, I'm going to be zany this week. I'm just going to look up a Greek word and see if I can learn more about my God. I'm going to put some work aside or some activities aside and I'm going to engage this as a family. Wouldn't that just be zany? Man, part of my problem is I get on Facebook and I see how people spend their time. (laughs) It's just a discouragement for me on Facebook. Everybody's so busy with the most insignificant stuff. And I look at myself and I go, man, I'm busy with the same kind of stuff. This is probably the most profound truth that I've engaged as a preacher. And if you're thinking right now, but it was just so irrelevant, you're going to find it invade you next week. So this week, the question to talk about as a family, as you engage this, as you study on perichoresis, P-E-R-I-C-H-O-R-E-S-I-S. Crazy, I know. Here's the question to engage this week. What does the perichoretic character of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, have to do with my Tuesday? What does it have to do with me as a teenager? Where, man, I'm just worried about what next clothes I'm going to buy, what car I'm going to drive, where I'm going to eat with my friends. What does it have to do with me if I'm 18? What does it have to do with me as a daddy? On Tuesday, what does it have to do with my relationship with my neighbors? What does it have to do with Sunday, with my view of church? What does the perichoretic nature of God have to do with my marriage or my parenting? I beg you to gnaw on that question this week. I beg you. A couple quick announcements. Tonight at 7 p.m. at Cleek Retreat, We're going to have Wrangler Night where 15-year-old and older men are welcome to come out and just spend some time in the Word together, spend some time enjoying each other. I'm going to spend some time tonight talking through some of this with the men. I encourage you to come out and be part of that at 7 p.m. at Cleek Retreat. If you don't know where that is, you can, I think we have a map online that you can get to, or you can look up something online and probably find it. If not, you can call me or something. The other announcement is our building has been shingled, not the big building, but our regular sanctuary has been, the roof has been repaired and shingled from the outside, but it's not finished inside. So we may be here again next week, but we'll let you know online. We'll keep you in the know. So consult the website. If you're not on our email mail out, I beg you to get on that. 
because I get emails or phone calls over the course of the week. Hey, man, what's up? And I'm like, hey, what's up? Why aren't you on the mail out? It's easy. That's a no-brainer. So you contact Biola in the office and say, hey, Biola, here's my email address, and we'll get you plugged in there, and you can stay in the know. Hey, y'all stand, and I'll dismiss you. Lord, we turn this week over to you for worship. Pray that as we're making money and solving problems and working in our yard or updating Facebook or visiting with friends or riding around in a car or drinking Starbucks, whatever we're doing this week, that this thought and this ultimate reality of you in the sun will be on our minds that we'll wonder, what does it mean? I pray that you'll show us what it means over the course of this week and next Sunday. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.